Do I have your attention now? I mean, if you've heard me speak before, you know we've got to start with a little rock and roll, right? But I want you to contemplate that question. Who do you love? That's what I want us to think about as we go through the sermon today. Who do you love? I want to welcome everybody. Thanks for being here, all of you here live with us and all those watching from all over. I know we have friends in, in Montana watching today, in Tennessee watching today. even heard that there is some folks in Brazil watching today. So that's sort of humbling. I feel the pressure. Okay, so I'll, I'll try, to, try to do well here. Um, my name's Rick Trout. I'm on the leadership team here. Used to be on the staff, but I'm sort of semi-retired now. But they uh, have allowed me the privilege and the honor to stand before you this morning and to just go into God's Word. Now, we're in Romans chapter 14. Sutton started us out last week. It's on uh, page 1124 in the church Bibles, if you want to follow along there. They're in the chair in front of you underneath. Or it'll be up on the screen. Most of it will be up there. So we just invite you to do however you want to on that. <clears throat> now, the, the overarching theme of chapter 14 is unity among believers, unity among Christians. Last week we heard that, that if you're not in a place yet where you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, if he's not your Lord and Savior, if you haven't come to that faith quite yet, then we're really not speaking to you today. But if you are a believer, if you have surrendered to Jesus and his spirit lives in your heart, then I want you to listen closely because I think that I may step on some toes this morning. It may feel like I'm pointing the finger this morning, but that's not my intent. I am here truly to just offer up the truth in love. I'll do my best to do that as we move forward today. So Sutton sort of set the stage for us last week in this 14th chapter. And I want us to, to revisit that for just a second to, to get the context of, of what we're doing here. All right, so this is Paul writing a letter to the church of Rome. Now, he's not there. It's not a church that he started. He's never been there to visit this church. He's probably in Corinth at this particular time at the writing of this letter. But he writes it to the people because he's heard some rumblings about some things going on, some dissension between the people in the church. Now, you need to understand this early church and, and how it was composed. You have... Jewish Christians, and you have Gentile Christians. Now, if you studied scripture at all, you know that the Jews and the Gentiles really didn't have a lot to do with one another. Their traditions were very different. Their cultures were very different. The Jewish people, they grew up studying the Torah, memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. They had laws and forbidden practices and lots of rules that the religious leaders added to the commandments to try to govern their behavior. They had certain rituals and feasts and festivals that they celebrated, and they felt that those things, that those essential things were, were part of how they worshiped God. Now, the Gentiles, on the other hand, came from a very, very different background. They were polytheistic. It's a big word. Uh, but that means that they worshiped a lot of gods, a lot of idols. They created their own. So both of these cultures now have come together through Jesus. The Jews have accepted Christ now as a Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. And they've gotten freedom 
from some of these laws, the penalty of these laws that they've struggled under for so long. The Gentiles, they come to Jesus. They find salvation through repentance and forgiveness, but it looks so much different to them than it does to the Jewish people. So it's not unlike our church today as we come together from many different backgrounds, many different denominations, and some from, from no church background whatsoever. So there were things that they disagreed on. Now, the time period for all this was the first century, 56, 57 AD. And, and they had a lot of concerns about what to eat, what not to eat, whether they should drink or not drink, which festival to celebrate. And they found themselves pointing fingers at one another, judging their faith and their spirituality based on what we'll call practices. All right? Now, I'm going to pick up in verse 13. I'm just going to read 13 to the end of the chapter, to 23. And then we're going to circle back around, and I'm going to try to pick some things out that I think Paul gives us here to to help us make good choices. All right? Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now I want to reemphasize here what, what Paul's talking about. Last week, Sutton called them opinions. Um, I think that's what the ESV says is opinions. The NIV calls them disputable matters. Um, I think they're practices, just things that people do. Um, Things that are somewhat gray areas in Scripture. There's not any chapter and verse that gives us specific direction on how to make choices and decisions regarding some of these things. What we're not talking about here are the essentials, the non-negotiables, if you will, like salvation. Jesus made it clear, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's not negotiable. That's one of those things we stand on, the commandments. 
the laws were given to Moses when he came off of the mountain and it was for the people of Israel to guide them and direct them in how to behave and how to get along with one another and how to worship God. And then the religious leaders tended to kind of add to it, mess it up to where it became impossible. But those things are still non-negotiables. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 18. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, with this in mind, we're we're talking about practices, not essentials. We're talking about non-essentials versus essentials. I want us to take a leap in time here. I want us to go from first century Rome to 21st century Roanoke, Virginia. That's a leap, isn't it? But I I think you're going to find as we go through here that there's a lot of similarities in our behavior and the first century folks' behavior. But I've come up with a list of things that um, we can disagree on. And sometimes we do to the point of really breaking things up, splitting people apart. I think it's the reason we have so many different denominations in the Protestant church. We, we tend to disagree on some of these non-essential things. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. It's just something that I came up with, that, and, and a lot of them are ones that I have personally struggled with. I know you can come up with a lot more. But as we go through this thing, to think about who it is that you love. All right, the first one on the list is movies. Some Christians think you shouldn't go to any kind of movies, that they all are, are evil in some sort of way. Other Christians, you know, they go by the ratings. Well, if it's G or if it's PG, then that's acceptable. That's okay. But if you get up there where the R's and the other letters of the alphabet, yeah, we, we can't go there. They're, they're cussing and taking their clothes off and no going to lead to nothing but bad stuff. But movies, movies can be a point of contention. Some people will point fingers and say, well, you're really not much of a Christian. You went to see this whatever movie. Or someone else can say in the other direction, well, you're awful uppity and think a lot of yourself because you don't go to movies. So movies can be a point of contention. I don't think it should be, though. Should we be judging each other's faith? based on the movies that we watch or that we don't watch? No. Another one, music. Worship music versus secular music, right? Some folks say that, you know, you got to listen to worship music. That, that secular music, especially that evil rock and roll, you know, it, it just leads to bad things. And, oh, my goodness, we can't go to hip-hop or rap. You know, the, it's just too much there. So music can be... A thing is it is it contemporary, or is it traditional? There are a lot of folks, a lot of Christians, who because they can't find a hymnal in the back of these seats, are very uncomfortable. the The organist, where's the organist, and where's the choir? And oh my goodness, they got drums and electric guitars. They cannot be true Christians. They cannot be not listening to that kind of stuff. So once again. It, it, it's a simple thing that we have choices in that we tend 
to make judgments about folks over. Next, clothing, attire. Now, I got to admit, this is one I've struggled with. Now, I, I didn't grow up in the church, but, you know, how low is too low? How high is too high? How tight is too tight? And how many holes are appropriate in a pair of jeans? <laughs> Questions I have. But coming up in, in, in my upbringing, you know, I, I didn't go to church. I, I didn't start into church until I was a young adult. But when I did, I, I w- would go to churches, and, and most of the time people were, were dressed up. You know, they, they would have a sport coat, the men, and maybe a tie or maybe a nice collared shirt and a pair of khakis and, you know, leather shoes and all those sorts of things. And the ladies would be wearing dresses and looking all proper. And, and so I kind of thought that that was the norm. That, that seemed like to me that was the rule. You know, you're supposed to look nice when you come to church. God's watching you and you need to look good. So that was in my brain. Well, then I come to Orchard Hills. And I found this casual atmosphere, and, and I loved it because I wasn't a, a shirt and tie kind of guy. I, I worked in public service, so I wore uniforms all day long, and all I wanted to do was just relax. And you know, But I was still shirt with a collar, khakis, leather shoes, belt, those kind of things. And I came here, and, and it was casual, and I thought, well, this is really nice. It was wintertime, and everybody looked good, but... Nobody was dressed up. Scott's up here, you know, he's got on his, his sweater and his shirt and, you know, look, look fine. Well, then springtime rolled around and I'm standing out front and here comes some folks wearing short pants and flip-flops, Virginia Tech t-shirts. <laughs> I mean, I got to admit, and this is me, I'm not trying to project this on any of you all and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Please don't take it that way. But it made me a little, little uncomfortable. I'm like, I, I'm not sure I can get into this sort of thing. And I found myself being a little judgmental over things. And, and God's working on me. You don't know how long it's taken for me to wear a pair of jeans here. But I still got a shirt with a collar. And I did wear shorts one time this year at our outside picnic. So he's working on me. But attire can be a point of contention, a point of disagreement among us, and it should be. I shouldn't judge you or you judge me in my relationship with Jesus based on what my clothes look like. Now, we do have to have some discretion, really. We need to be respectful of others and of ourselves. So we need to, you know, I won't use the term common sense because that's just not appropriate these days in our society, is it? Um, so anyway, we'll move on. Number four, Sabbath observance. This is one that some people get sort of in a knot over. Now, in a Protestant church, it's always been Sunday for us, right? Sunday is the day of worship. It's the day of rest. Now, the Sabbath, God gave the Sabbath to man. He didn't make man for the Sabbath, right? He gave this to us as, as a gift of a, a day, one day out of seven to do no work, to rest. And we have kind of twisted that around, haven't we? When I was a young person, and and this is in the olden times, a lot of you weren't even born then, I know, but bear with me here. On Sundays, everything was closed. No businesses were open. You couldn't purchase anything. 
it was kind of a, a forced rest day because there was nothing to do. You know, as a kid, you could play outside, but, you know, there, there was just really nothing going on. Everything was closed. And it was literally against the law for stores to open and operate. Then gradually those things changed and you could buy certain things on Sunday, but other things you couldn't buy. Well, now look where we are. I mean, we live in a world now that it's seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It never, ever ends. I passed this shell station right up the street here when I was coming in this morning, and I thought, someone stayed there all night long to keep that open. How much business did it really do? And now they're open all day today, and they'll be open all day Monday and every day next week. So, I, I, you know, again, it's, it's my feelings about it. We should take a day of rest. Now, I worked shift work for many, many years. I, I worked Sundays and Saturdays and holidays. So sometimes the day that I had off to rest was Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever. So I don't think it, that God is really uptight about what day we give. It's just we need to take a day. But if we decide not to, is it my place to point a finger at you and saying, you heathen, you cut your yard on Sunday, what's wrong with you? You washed your car? Come on. These are the things that we disagree about sometimes. Number five, jewelry and tattoos. All right, this is another biggie sometimes. You know, there are certain denominations that frown upon ladies wearing jewelry of any kind. Wedding bands, okay. Maybe a pair of small earrings, not big ones, but small ones. But others don't have any qualms about jewelry at all. Some think that it's, it's drawing attention to yourself. It's all about you. You want people to notice you. You're selfish. You don't really love Jesus. You're not here to worship him. You're here to get people to look at you. That's what goes through some people's minds. It's wrong. It's just wrong for us to make those kind of judgments. And then you say tattoos, okay? Tattoos are a phenomenon that I have seen evolve through my lifetime. When I was a kid, the only people that I saw who had tattoos were either former military or they'd just gotten out of prison. Seriously. I mean, do any of you all remember that? That was pretty much the way it was. You were, you were a Marine or a sailor or something, and you were overseas or at port, and you got a tattoo. You know, your wife, your girlfriend, a heart, a snake, whatever it was. That was the limit of tattoos back in the day. Nowadays, it's, it's more a form of personal expression, if you will. Now, I have tattoos. You can't see them now, but I have them. My son's whole arm is tattooed, and I have lots of friends that have lots of tattoos. Now, I think that doesn't really impact your ability to follow Christ or whether or not your heart's in the right place. But it does affect the way other people see you and see me. So we have to be aware of these things, not necessarily taboo everything that we don't like or we don't agree with, but just take into consideration that everybody's in a different place, right? All right, I saved the last two that seem to be the biggies. And, and number six is tobacco, all right? Smoking, chewing, or dating girls that do. <laughs> now we got to add vaping to that as well. All right, so 
we all know in this day and age the, the detrimental effects on our health from, from tobacco, right? That all, hasn't always been the case. No, once again, back in the olden days, they advertised cigarettes as being good for you. Oh, yeah, man, it's relaxing. You love the flavor, this non-filtered, yeah, and just puff away. And then the Surgeon General decides, well, I don't know. There's some tar issues in the lungs that comes from these cigarettes. Cigarette manufacturers said, hey, we can take care of that. No, not a problem. We'll take some asbestos and some other silicone stuff, and we'll wind it up and put a filter on that rascal. It'll be safe. Well, we all know that that didn't turn out well either, but it's been an evolution. Okay, so I'm here to say that if you smoke, you're not going to hell. You're just going to smell like you've been there. Got to put some humor in here because I know I'm poking some people today. All right, the next one. And, and I used to smoke. I smoked tobacco. I smoked other naturally occurring substances. Um, and, you know, that was in the past. Uh, th- the next one, number seven, the last one is alcohol. Ooh, liquor, moonshine. Yeah, that evil alcohol. There are people who are absolutely in a knot over this, that they feel that a Christian, I mean, you shouldn't possess it in your house. You never let it cross your lips. Don't be seen in the store buying a 12-pack or, heaven forbid, coming out of the ABC store. Some folks make some judgments about that. Now, I will say that we do have a little guidance in Scripture on this one. All right? In, in Ephesians 5.18, it says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Do not get drunk on wine. Well, I don't drink wine. Yeah, okay, so I, I got I to gotta buy on it. No, that's not what it's saying. So it's saying not, don't get drunk. Okay, well, yeah, I, I, I can drink and not get drunk. Well, then how do you know? We've got to have a standard, don't we? So let's, let's use the blood alcohol content that, that all of our law enforcement agencies use to determine whether you're intoxicated. It's pretty much standard across the country. It may vary from state to state. But 0.08% blood alcohol says you're intoxicated. Okay, now I did a little research. And a guy my size, a male, I can drink four ounces of alcohol an hour and not bump that .08. Should I? Is it safe? Does that mean that I'm not a sinner? Well, now wait a minute. Not too many years ago, .10 was the legal limit. In Europe... 0.03 is the legal limit, and in China, 0.02. So what standard do we use? Is God a Chinese God? Is he a European God? Or is he an American God? There's a lot of gray areas here. The guidance is there, and once again, just like tobacco, we know the devastating effects that abuse of alcohol can cause in our lives. 
when I was on staff here, I never remember a time that someone came into my office and sat there and said, Rick, let me tell you about all the good stuff that happened in my life because of my drinking. Never heard that. Instead, it was always the opposite. It was always something's falling apart because of the abuse of alcohol. Now, in, in the job that I had in the fire service and EMS, I saw the effects of alcohol abuse almost daily in our culture. Automobile accidents, domestic disputes, you, you name it. You, you can go through the gamut. So we have to have some discretion. We have to be careful in our choices. Personally, I have seen what alcohol can do. My father was an alcoholic. He didn't think he was. He didn't think he had a drinking problem. At 42 years old, a cerebral hemorrhage killed him from his drinking. 42. So I know the devastating effects that alcohol has. Does that mean I'm a teetotaler? No. I enjoy a glass of bourbon every now and then and a cold beer after I cut the yard. And I have a clear conscience about that. But now if you're a non-drinker and you see me or you hear me say that from up here, does it make you take pause? Does it make you think, well, maybe he shouldn't even be up there at all if he drinks? Things that we disagree about. All right, now we have some freedom. We have some freedom to make some choices. But we have to be careful not to let the freedom that we have lead to insensitivity toward others, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? Should we care what other people think? Absolutely. And that, in our culture, is probably the most countercultural statement you could make. Should we care what other people think? Because we live in a world that's all about me. I can live right here, do what I want, be what I want, go where I want, and it's not going to bother you at all. We are totally misled and deceived by the enemy in that, right? It's not just about you and God. It's about you and God and everybody else. That's how we walk out our faith. That's what makes up this thing we call the church, this body of believers that we are. Now, I want to circle back around and, and sort of go through this whole chapter and pick out some of the things that Paul gives us, some principles that he gives us that I think will help us to make good choices. All right, the first one, is accept someone whose faith is weak. Now, when I say weak, I'm not talking about inferior. All right, that's not at all what I mean. And I know that's what pops into our heads sometimes. Someone whose faith is weak could be a new believer. All right, someone who's just come to Christ. And they don't know a lot. So they're, they're searching and they're watching and they're watching us and they're watching other believers to try to make good choices and good decisions. So we have to be careful. We have to be there to guide them, to direct them. Someone weak in their faith could be someone who comes from a very legalistic background. All right? They, they are much like the Jewish people. They, they've got all these rules and regulations and forbidden practices, and 
they just can't go there. They just can't go there. Or maybe they came from a church where they didn't hear the gospel on a regular basis. So they're just sort of starved Christians, starved believers. That's what I'm talking about when I say weak. We should accept that people are different. We all are different, and we all are in different places in our relationship with Christ. We need to accept those people where they are. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Did did, did he expect us to get all cleaned up and do everything perfect, and then he would accept us? No. He took each and every one of us, and probably most of us, at some kind of low point in our life when sin had overwhelmed us to the point that we, we had no other place to go. And he welcomed us. We should be that same way to one another. Number two, don't pass judgment on the one who has freedom. That's what I've been saying this morning, talking about these different practices, is we have all been accepted through Jesus. He is the judge. We are not. So it's not up to us to point fingers and make judgments, though we do. We do. You know we do. We all do. When we're, we're out in public, when we're here at church on a Sunday morning. I mean, when we, we go back to that thing of, of jewelry and tattoos and those things. You know, is, is it possible to be a Christian with gauges in your ears? Or a ring in your nose? Or a pierced eyebrow? Or sleeves inked? Yes, it is. It completely is. But us old people, we see that and we're like, ooh, how'd they do that? We've got to accept everyone. We are not the judge. Number three, have a clear conscience about your choices. If something that you have freedom to do gives you pause, don't go there. And again, I'm speaking to those of you who have the Holy Spirit living within you. That's our guide. He is our conscience. He is the one that stirs those little things in us. After all, he was the one that brought us to Jesus in the first place. You may think you made this decision on your own. No, the Holy Spirit woos us and draws us to himself, to God. And that spirit is within each of us as believers. So if you have freedom to do something, if you feel like that having a drink is okay and you can do that, fine. But if you think about that and you, you catch a little pause in your spirit, don't go there. Just don't go there. Trust that the Holy Spirit will guide your conscience. Number four. Do everything unto the Lord. What does that mean? That means know who you belong to. Sutton talked about it last week. We don't belong to ourselves. You might think you do, but if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You're controlled by the Spirit. Understand that everything you do, you do unto the Lord. 
Now, does that make you stop and think about the choices that you make? I hope so. I hope it does. Because he is the one that's going to judge us, not the people around us. He is the only one. Number five, don't let your freedom distress or destroy others. Liberty does not mean insensitivity. Right? I'll say that again. Liberty does not mean insensitivity. Because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you necessarily should. You should think about how it affects the people around you. You see, by, by giving up your freedom to do something, it's not being restrictive. You're not restricting yourself. Oh, but I got the right to do that. I got the freedom to do that. Yeah, but to not do that for a brother's sake is not restrictive. It's, it's showing love to others. Who do we love? Who do you love? We have to show people that. So don't think that, that giving up something that you enjoy for the sake of someone else. Say there's someone who, who has a problem with drinking. And to see you drink means it's acceptable, so they start drinking. And then it becomes a problem for them. And that's that stumbling block we talked about. That's that thing where we don't want to distress or destroy someone else because we can handle it. For the Jews and the Gentiles, it was about eating meat and not eating meat. It was about drinking wine and not drinking wine. Well, for us in this society, in this technological age that we live in, there's so many things. And our culture tells us that everything's okay. Whatever you want, if it feels good, do it. Again, it's a lie. And if you as a believer, a follower of Christ fall into that lie, you're in for trouble. Number six, do what leads to peace and builds others up. Ask yourself, what can I do or what can I not do to build somebody else up? You know, time and time again through, through the Gospels, we heard Jesus say, love one another. The disciples love one another. His final words to them were, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. By this, that you love one another, people will know that you belong to me. The world will see me through you if you love one another. How hard is that for us to do in this culture? But think about what this world would look like, what your family would look like, what your workplace would look like if we could just pull that off. I mean, I I challenge you to try that tomorrow. Don't think about it in the long term. Just try it tomorrow. That those people that you work with or, or your family members that Get on your last nerve sometimes. Try to love them the way Jesus loved you, the way he forgave each and every one of us for all of the things that we did, that we do, and that we will do.
He's our example. That's what we need to do. So I ask you, who do you love? Do you love yourself and your opinions and your practices more than you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love yourself and your right to do something and your freedom to do something more than you love those people around you? It's a tough question, but it's one that I think we should contemplate. Now, I want to leave you with this. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Let's pray. Father God, we just come humbly into your presence. We acknowledge that more times than not, we just don't get this right. And we understand that without the power of your spirit living within us, we can't get it right. So help us, Lord. Help us to surrender each and every day to you, to surrender every thought, every emotion, every choice that we make to you, understanding that we are yours and you are ours. We love you. We praise you. We honor you in all we think, say, and do in Christ's name. Amen. So now we're going to take a few minutes to contemplate these things. Um, We've got some prayer ministers up here at the rail that would love to, to pray for you or pray with you. It's a time when you can just sit back in your seat and, and think and open up your hearts and listen for that small voice inside you, that spirit that lives in there. Trust that it lives in there.